Great to see your smiling faces here uh, today. Hey, get your Bible and uh, open up with me to Matthew chapter 2. You don't have a Bible, there's one right there at your seat. And of course, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one as our gift to you. We want everybody with an open Bible, open heart uh, toward the Lord. Okay, Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, uh, speaking of uh, this Christmas, we, you know, next, next week, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And uh, next Sunday is Christmas Eve. What did I say? Next Sunday, is, let's all say it together. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And so we're going to have four services, nine, 11, three, and five. And uh, they're all the same, all the same, all Christmas Eve services. So pick one that fits your family, but also think about somebody you can bring on on Christmas Eve, okay? It's going to be a great, great time uh, together next Sunday uh, on Christmas Eve, okay? And when it comes to Christmas, there are some of you that are like this guy. Uh, you're just excited about Christmas, right? You're just fired up. You're like, I just love Christmas. Just, you know, I love Christmas movies. I love Christmas music. I love Christmas cookies. I love gifts and presents. You're the whole thing. You're just, you're just all into Christmas. This is your week, man. You're like, yes, uh, you're all into it. And then there's some of you that are like this guy. They're like, yo, bah humbug. You know, I don't like the, you know, all the traffic at the mall and all the excessive spending and, and the in-laws coming over, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so you're not really that fired up about Christmas. And it's kind of interesting. You put these two people together. You may be married. This may be your marriage right here. I don't know. <laughs> so you, this may be it. You know, that's the problem, you know, uh, because you're like people that, that, that can't wait and the people that can't stand Christmas, right? Or those that look forward to it, those that look forward to it being over, you know, and, and just, just the contrast, they, these are clashing views of Christmas, okay? And, uh, you know, there's a musical term for that. You know, we've been in this series called the, the Song of Christmas, looking at Christmas like a song. And we looked at the prelude. It starts way back in the Old Testament. We looked at the melody. is a melody of God's grace. We looked at uh, last week the crescendo where we have to wait for it to fully come to fruition. Uh, today, we're looking at a term called dissonance. You know what dissonance is? It's like when two notes are clashing together. They're, they're not in harmony. They're just uh, off they're dissonance. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're clashing together. We don't like dissonance, right? And so in some ways, people's view of Christmas creates dissonance, you know, between them. But what we're going to find is that there also, there was also dissonance in that very first Christmas, a clashing of ideas wrapped around that very, very first Christmas, Okay. And we find that in Matthew chapter 2. Now, this is a very familiar story. Uh, so I want you to try to read it as if this is our first time hearing it. It's a very familiar story. We're going to look at the characters of this story. And then we're going to move to the clash of these two different approaches to Christmas. And then ultimately to the child and the choice that every one of us needs to make. Okay. So let's, let's start here now, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, uh, at the characters. Uh, and this is the word of God, amen? amen? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising 
and have come to worship him. All right, so right off the bat, we're kind of introduced some very important characters in this uh, historical account. Uh, the first one I want you to circle is, is the name Herod there. Uh, often he's referred to as King Herod. Uh, King Herod, his father was Antipater, who was from Indomenia, which is, uh, or modern day Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. And he was kind of a off again, on again supporter uh, of Rome. But at one point, he actually rescued Julius Caesar in a battle in Egypt. And because of that, he became a friend of Rome. And Caesar gave him the area of Israel to govern, to rule. So Antipater was the first ruler of Israel uh, in the Herod family. Uh, His son uh, was put in charge of Galilee. And then, of course, when Antipater, the father, passed away, Herod took his throne. In fact, it was in 37 BC that uh, Herod, what we know now as King Herod, uh, was called or given the title by the Roman Senate uh, as King of the Jews. It was a very important title to him, King of the Jews. Now, uh, there's a lot we could say about Herod. He was a, a strong leader for sure. But probably what he's most known for today is the fact that he was a builder. In fact, Israel really came to its highest point under King Herod, as far as its, its prominence and wealth, even surpassing that of Solomon. Uh, and he built lots of projects that still remain today. For example, uh, Caesarea Maritima is one of those places I've talked to you about that, that massive port city created out of nothing, some very spectacular engineering going on in this particular city. He also created a palace called Masada, that's next to the Dead Sea. Many of you know the historical significance of this city. We're the last stand of the Jewish people uh, before they were ultimately dominated and crushed by the Romans in 70 AD. Uh, the, the Herodian is another one of his palaces that's just located outside of Bethlehem. In fact, when we take a tour, we will usually go to the Herodian first and we'll stand up there and I will introduce you who King Herod is, but you also get to look over the rolling hills of Bethlehem and, and it's a great place to tell the uh, Christmas story from that vantage point. Incidentally, the Herodian is where they found Herod's bones. So this is actually not only one of his palaces, but one of, uh, of his, uh, the uh, burial place of King Herod. Probably his greatest known building project was the temple itself. He took the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonian exile and he expanded it, developed it. And so he did this as a gift to kind of ingratiate himself to the Jews. And so much of the temple was rebuilt by Herod. Often it's called Herod's Temple. And so he was a builder. He was a man of, that liked his title, a man of great power. He was aggressive. He was assertive. He was a visionary. He was ambitious and driven. And at times he was very cruel. He died in 4 BC. And uh, after his death, the region of Israel was broken up into different districts and his sons ruled over them. And so oftentimes you read of King Herod here in the birth narrative of Jesus, and then you read again about Herod during the life of Jesus. Well, that's not actually Herod the Great. Now that says his sons. And then later on in the book of Acts, you pick up some of his grandsons. So there was a a Herodian dynasty. And a lot of times if you don't know that, you're thinking, man, Herod's all over the place. Well, it's it's really multiple Herods that we're reading about 
uh, in the scriptures. Another um, character or characters that are important in this story are the Magi. So circle the word Magi there. Uh, the Magi, who are these people? They're quite mysterious people, actually. Um, we don't really know a whole, whole lot about them, but what we do know, we kind of excavate out of the Old Testament. Uh, from what we can tell, the Magi were a priestly caste of leaders that served the king in Babylon during Israel's exile in Babylon. Some date the Magi all the way back to Abraham's time. Uh, but these were scholars, they were advisors, they were scientists, theologians. Um, they had um, a diversity of practices and domains of science that they study. You know, today you kind of get your theologians on this side of the aisle and then the scientists on this side of the aisle. Uh, back in those days, everything was all together, right? So your, your understanding of the world was not divorced from your understanding of God. And so they, they, had, they, had, they were uh, experts in multiple fields. For example, they studied the stars. Uh, of course, at that time, everyone navigated by the stars. That was not anything new or special. But they, they particularly studied uh, astronomy. Uh, they also studied um, uh, Zoroastrianism, which was an eclectic religion. It was a monotheistic religion. Um, they also uh, had an interest in in the metaphysics, and so actually the word magic comes from the word magi. Uh, they were also uh, legal experts. They were to interpret the law, create the law. They were more like a, a senator and a judge in many cases. In fact, our word magistrate comes from the word magi. So they would advise a king on the law of the Medes and Persians, and if the king needed to know how to interpret a law or what should be done, the Magi were his advisors. Just like, you know, today our president has advisors in certain fields and disciplines. He would call them in to advise him on policy. These were the Magi. That's what they did. They were advisors on all things to the king. But one of the things that they did that was extremely unique was that they were the king makers. In the sense that the Magi were the ones to identify an emerging king, to train and develop that king, and then ultimately to commission a king into power. In fact, a person couldn't assume power in Babylon without the Magi first designating them as the leader. And so for that, in that regard, they were quite powerful um, as the king makers. And that gives a uh, an important twist to understanding their appearance here at the birth of Jesus. Now, the real question comes, how do they know, these people from Babylon, how do they know, uh, how do they know about this Messiah King in the first place? And to answer that, you really have to go back to when Israel was exiled in Babylon, about 605 BC. Uh, there were multiple deportations from Israel uh, to Babylon, and some names that you would recognize were a part of that deportation. Daniel, uh, there's a whole book of Daniel in our Bible, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Appendigo, others like this, were a part of that deportation. And if you recall, in the book of Daniel, we learned that Daniel was, uh, was a man of God that was able to interpret a dream for the king. And he, the, the, the king asked for an interpretation, but he said, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. You have to tell me what the dream is and the interpretation. They're like, well, nobody can do that. That, that's, that no one's ever asked us uh, to do such a thing, but Daniel was able to do it. 
He told the king his dream and told him an accurate interpretation. And for that, Daniel was elevated. He was elevated to be the ruler or the king or the leader of the wise men in Babylon. Daniel 5.11 tells us he was the chief of the wise men. And so Daniel's influence cannot be overstated. In fact, Daniel spoke a lot about a king that was coming. In Daniel chapter 2, he interpreted a dream. There was a statue. The king sees a statue and parts of the statue represent certain successive kingdoms. There's the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. But there's a massive stone that will come and knock it all down. And it represents an eternal kingdom. And so Daniel said there's going to be a kingdom that will last forever, right? That will overpower all known kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision of a son of man coming on the clouds of glory and that is the king who will rule over this eternal kingdom. And then in Daniel chapter 9, he provides actually a timeline of events that will happen leading up to the birth of this eternal king. Now, all this was folded into the curriculum of the wise men in Persia. They were looking for an eternal kingdom led by an eternal king who would come on this specific timeline that was told to them by Daniel. I'm sure Daniel probably also included other prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, such as Numbers 24, 17, it's, which says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. So this king is going to come from Israel and, it, and the, one of the signs is going to be a star. Also, of course, we know Isaiah chapter 9, it says the people walking in darkness have seen a great, what? Light. And, and, and a light is dawn on the people living in darkness. So here's, here's Daniel instructing them on this prophecy. And then for five, six hundred years, they've been studying and watching, studying, watching, following the timeline. It's part of their curriculum, looking for this eternal king. Now, you know, their role as king makers, this was very important for them to identify this eternal king that would come. And so they're watching, they're watching, they're watching, they're watching, and one day they see a star that's coming from that direction. They ascertain that this is the sign, of the timeline matches up, and so they go to acknowledge and to discover and to greet this new king. So they travel from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to Israel. Now this is a long trip, right? This is a long trip. A person actually Google mapped this. What it would take for you to actually walk this today? And they determined that if you walked uh, this route, you would travel 1,153 kilometers or about 716 miles. If you traveled eight hours a day, that would take you close to 32.5 days or so. So just call it a month of travel uh, to get from Baghdad to Israel. It's roughly about the distance from Dallas to Denver. So think of it this way. When you go skiing in January, you can just tell your family, hey, we're going to do something a little different this year. We're going to walk to Denver. Right. And do the track of the Magi. Wouldn't that be great? You know? Uh, so anyway, that's, that's uh, really different, uh, the distance. It, it was a long trip. It was also a very dangerous trip. 
You know, I, I think in past it has been, uh, it's, I, I've missed the fact that the Parthian Empire that was the strong superpower in the east over modern day Iran, Iraq, and the, and the Western Roman Empire were the two superpowers of the day. And they were warring over who was going to eventually rule. And so the, the, between the, the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire was this little sliver of land called Israel. Right there, smack in the middle. And so when you have uh, these wise men, these king makers from a warring empire coming into Jerusalem, uh, it raises a lot of attention. By the way, the, the wise men showing up to Jerusalem wasn't like they, it's portrayed oftentimes in the movies. You know, in the movies, we kind of see these three wise men like uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly, you know, kind of the, the comic relief of the story. You know, they're kind of bumbling around on some camels, you know, where is the Messiah? You know, or something crazy like that. It, that's not at all what it was like. Number one, there, there weren't necessarily just three kings, all right? Uh, they weren't kings. They were advisors. There weren't three of them. There were three gifts. That's where we get the three from. And we certainly don't know their names, even though in the medieval period, there were fake names attached to them. Uh, but they most likely came in a great entourage. Think of it. These are very prominent leaders from Persia, probably riding Persian steeds uh, with, with soldiers and servants and supplies and a massive, maybe hundreds of people traveling this great distance. And so they came into Jerusalem thinking, hey, that's the capital. That must be where the king is, uh, looking to see this new king of Israel and asking, where is the king of the Jews? And that is where the clash begins. Let's look at it. Look at verse 3. It says, and when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And when Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared, he went... Uh, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. You know, verse three, it says Herod was disturbed. That word disturbed there means agitated, angry. Uh, it wasn't like he was scared. It was like he was mad. Uh, it, it, it conjures up image of somebody pacing in a rage. And, and why was he so upset? Because remember, his title was king of the Jews. You're looking for the king of Jews, that's me. And you have to also understand that this is late in Herod's life. Herod's not going to live very much longer. He's probably a year before his death. And so in his later years, he really became psychotic, very paranoid, very afraid that people were going to take his power from him. So afraid that he had his own wife murdered. He had his mother-in-law murdered. He had three of his own sons killed with no real evidence because he supposed that they were trying to take his throne. In fact, we're going to find later this 
carving illustrates the murder of every baby boy in Bethlehem that he killed because he was afraid that a new king would take his place. He, he had a dark, dark side. In fact, I believe it was uh, uh, Emperor Octavian who said it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. His pig is safer than his own and son in Herod's house. So Herod is disturbed and the people know this about him. So they're really upset because when Herod gets disturbed, people die. Now Herod turns to the priests or the scribes and asks them where is the this Christ to be born, the Messiah to be born. And they quickly refer, they don't have to Google search it or anything. They know it off the top of their head. Uh, they quote Micah 5, 2, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, you've got to understand the topography here. Bethlehem is just a suburb of Jerusalem, right? Still today, it's about five miles from Jerusalem. You could easily walk it. And you can see from Bethlehem everything, you know, you can see uh, kind of the, the high rising uh, buildings in Jerusalem. And so it's just right there. And uh, Bethlehem is rich in history. Even though it was a small little village at that time, it was rich in history. This is the place where Ruth and Boaz met together. Uh, this is uh, the place King David was born there. One of the greatest kings in Israel's history. In fact, later on became known as the, the city of David. Bethlehem actually is a combination word, bet meaning house, lachem, meaning bread. So it is literally called the house of bread, most likely referring to the farmland around it. But it doesn't get past us that Jesus was uh, called himself the bread of life coming from the house of bread, the small little village of Bethlehem. You know, it's interesting to note here that people really didn't expect anything to happen big in their little town. They just didn't expect it. We're just a little town, you know, we're just common people. There's nothing big that happens here. Everything big and important happens up in the city, not, not in our little town. They didn't expect the Christ to be born there. You know what? God often works in places and ways we don't expect. You may not expect God to work in your life or in your children's lives or in your great, great grandchildren's lives. But we need to expect God to work because he is at work even when we don't see it. So here they are, they're in Bethlehem. Uh, they're told this is where the Christ is to be born. And then they meet the child. Look at verse nine. And after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. You know, verse 9, it says that the star that they had seen appeared again. Apparently, the star they had seen uh, from uh, Babylon had disappeared and so now they see it again verse 10 it's called the star verse 2 it's called his star by the way did you know that you can buy a star 
Uh, this, this may be a good stocking stuffer for you, you know, if you're still looking for that last minute gift for the person that, that has everything. How about a star? You can go to the star registry and just for 39, uh, let's see, I think it is 39.90, you can get just a standard star. If you want to buy a particularly bright star, it'll cost you $180, right? For $180, you can put your name right there on a star, all right? So I think that's kind of cool. You know, it could be your star, right? Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it's not your star, right? You didn't create it. Uh, you didn't make it. It's not your star. But, but this one was actually Jesus's star. Verse two, it says it's his star. Now, a lot of people ask me, you know, what is this star business? You know, what, what is it? What is it? And the fact of the matter is we really don't know. Some people say it's an actual star. Some people say, well, of course, it's Jupiter or Saturn merging together. Some think it's a supernova. Yes, I've seen the documentary, The Bethlehem Star. I've done the research on that. Uh, Some people think that it was a comet. Some people think it was a meteor, some kind of moving celestial body like that. But, But here's the problem with that. How does a star lead you over a house? I mean, I mean, if you see a star overhead of maybe, maybe Jerusalem, but if Bethlehem's just five miles away, how do you know if it's over Jerusalem or over Bethlehem? I mean, you looked up the sky, the sky before. How does a star lead them and spotlight the very place? What is this thing? And of course, I believe we're not talking about something that's natural. I believe we're talking about something that is supernatural. This is a miracle of God. It's a miracle. God is moving in a supernatural way. Now, let me just kind of give you what I think it is. This is Craig's thought, take it or leave it. I think what we're seeing here is a manifestation of the glory of God. A manifestation of the glory of God. In Exodus 13, we see uh, the glory of God leading the Israelites, stopping and starting, giving them direction as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We see the glory of God envelop Moses on the mountain when he received the Ten Commandments. We saw the glory of God envelop the temple when Solomon lifted up worship in the temple, the glory of God. Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple. Some sense of a light moving to the east, abandoning God's people because of their wickedness and idolatry. And we don't see the glory of God again until it appears on the outside of a little town called Bethlehem. When angels appear to lowly shepherds and it says that the, the, glory, of the, God, the glory of God surrounded them and they were terrified. The brightness of the glory of God. I think that's what you're you're seeing here. In fact, the glory of God continues through the life of Christ. The glory of God enveloped Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5. The glory of God uh, enveloped Jesus at his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And in fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is coming again. Did you know that? And when he comes, um, Mark 13 says he's coming with power and great glory. Great glory. So you have here the glory of God, right? The brilliance of God. In fact, I love what, what Hebrews uh, 1.3 says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's the brilliance of God's glory. So I, I, just, I just think that this star is a manifestation of the glory of God leading them all the way to a place. Spotlighting 
the very place where Christ was. Now, of course, it says here that they came to a house. They didn't come to a stable. Uh, this, this is where Jesus was born. He was born in a stable, right? But we saw last week that about 40 days later, they took him to be dedicated in the temple. And then they came back to Bethlehem and they moved into a house. Now, I'm sure it wasn't a, a spectacular house, but it was a house nonetheless. So this is why we always tell you that the wise men were not with the shepherds, you know, in the typical nativity setup. I tell you this every year, and you know what's coming, because I'm going to get to it. I'm going to say the same thing I do every year, that, you know, to be theologically correct, you need to separate your wise men from your nativity scene at home. And so I, I have been doing this for years. Liz has resisted until this year. She finally gave in. So here's some pictures of like... See the nativity at the bottom, but the, but the wise men are up top, right? They're still searching, still searching. Here's another one here. They got the nativity on the right. Here are the wise men on the left. This goes all the way through our house, folks. Uh, we're theologically correct at our house. Uh, so, uh, but they come to a house and it says there that as they came to the house, I believe it's in verse 10, they came to the house and they were very disappointed. Is that what it says? Does it say that they were disappointed when they came to the house? I mean, I'm sure this house wasn't exactly what they expected, right? They're thinking, hey, we're the king of Israel. Not just the king of Israel, but the eternal king has been born. I mean, don't they? Uh, they're going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to be in a palace. He's going to be in a mansion. He's gonna, I mean, it's going to be awesome. And they, and they get to Jerusalem and nobody knows what they're talking about. And they get go out, pushed out to the suburb, to a little bitty village, and they get to this little bitty, probably one room shack, because we know Mary and Joseph were very poor. I don't know, it, at least it wasn't what they expected, I'm sure. But it doesn't say they were disappointed. It says they were overjoyed. Uh, some versions say exceedingly joyful. It's a, it's, it's a construction in the Greek that tries to pile on that say they weren't just happy. They were really, really happy that they had found this Messiah. You know, it's just a good reminder that many times life isn't what we expect. I thought I was going to get into the school. I thought I was going to get ma be married by this time. I thought my kid was going to turn out to be a certain way. I thought my career would really take off. I, I thought I would have more time. Life isn't always what we expect. But you can have joy because joy isn't about where you are in life. Joy is about who you know. And when you're pursuing Jesus, that's where the joy is. And so they're overwhelmed with joy. And it says that they came in and they worshiped him. This is a tender moment here. Here these king makers, these powerful king makers from the east are kneeling down before this toddler child to worship him and offering their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, it's easy to come to a worship service and not worship. Did you know that? It's easy to come to a worship service and kind of get through the songs to endure the preaching and uh, the highlight of the service is if we got out on time. And uh, it's easy to do that, but not to recognize who we are worshiping. But these Gentiles acknowledge who they are worshiping. i never forget years ago, I was in a pastor's conference in Chicago. 
And uh, it had been a long day and we had heard lots of different preachers and we were on the last speaker of the night. And quite honestly, I wasn't expecting a whole lot. And God met me. And I was so moved by the Spirit of God in my own heart that all I could do was to quietly slip down on my knees and my seat and just weep before the Lord. It was a posture of worship. That's what these wise men were doing. They were on their knees worshiping Jesus. And it is the only, the only acceptable posture when you're in front of the king. King Jesus. And that leads us to the choice. Why do we look at this Christmas story? Every year we look at it. What do we take away from it? It represents a clash. Two different kinds of people that all respond to Jesus. There are some people that reject Jesus. We see that most clearly with Herod, right? Herod rejected Christ. He hated Christ. He tried to kill Christ. He hated him, why? Because he, he wanted to be in control. He was gripping, white-knuckling his own sense of control in his own life. And I know a lot of people are that way. You know, they hear the gospel time and time again, but they will not surrender to anyone. I remember talking with a guy one time over dinner. I was sharing the gospel with him, and he looked up at me, very matter-of-factly so, not disrespectful, but very matter-of-factly, and he said, listen, I hear what you're saying, but I will not surrender my life to anyone one but I want you to understand that whatever sense of control you think you might have right now which by the way you don't have as much as you think you do in the moment that you stand before Jesus Christ that will evaporate like the early morning breath and in that moment you are standing in the presence of King Jesus and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess so now is the time to acknowledge King Jesus. You, you don't make Jesus Lord, right? You don't make him that. He is Lord. We just acknowledge his lordship. And that's what these, these people were doing. That's what Herod refused to do. Are you white knuckling your own sense of control and will not surrender to King Jesus? Now, you may say, well, I'm not doing that. I mean, I like Jesus. I mean, after all, I made it to the middle service. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I, I'm, for, I'm on team Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. Yeah, I love that. But maybe you're like the, uh, maybe you're like the rabbis of that day, the scribes that knew all about Jesus. They knew chapter and verse where he was going to be born. But it just, just baffles me that after they see these people coming such great distance to see this born king and they hear about it and they see it and they know where it's going to be, that they wouldn't even bother to travel five miles to see if it was true. What indifference, what apathy. You know, I know people that grown up in church, they've heard this story a gazillion times. Oh, yeah, I know. I Yeah, yeah, go Frank, Susan Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. La, 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 I got it down. And they're unmoved that the king of the universe would come for us. Unmoved. Are you unmoved? Are you apathetic to the reality of the gospel? God help us 
that we would ever be unmoved by him. These people reject Jesus. But then there are those that pursue Jesus. And that's really the picture of these wise men. And these were people that you wouldn't expect to pursue Jesus. They're Gentiles from Baghdad. No one would expect that. And yet here they're pursuing the Lord. It kind of reminds me, you have, you have the person that grew up in church. Oh yeah, I know the story, unmoved. And then you have someone that never grew up in church at all, right? They, they didn't have Christian parents. They didn't, didn't really know anything about the scripture. And then all of a sudden, God brings the gospel to them. And they're like, holy cow, this is amazing, man. Man, God loves me and I have a purpose in Christ. And they're just gravitating to the gospel. And they're so joyful at Christmas time because they have embraced the Messiah that their soul longs for. What a contrast. These wise men, they pursued Jesus in very practical ways. How did they do it? Well, they, they, their Bible was open. Their scriptures were open. They studied and studied and studied the scripture. Their eyes were open. They followed the evidence. What is their evidence? Where does it lead you? Their, their ears were open to godly counsel when they heard, where is he going to be born again? Oh, then we'll go there. Their hearts were open when they encountered the gospel. They didn't stand off and say, I'm not bowing, but they quickly bowed on their knees and worshiped him. This is how you pursue Jesus. With an open Bible, open eyes, open heart. Are you pursuing Jesus today? Two kinds of people. Those that are excited about Jesus, that pursue him, and those that reject him. The clash of ideas. John chapter 1 says this, he was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So which one are you? Are you like those that did not recognize Jesus? Are you those that see him and believe in him and become a child of God? Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. The gospel reminds us that the real dissonance is not between you and another person. The real dissonance is the enmity between you and God. Your sin has separated you from God. You're far from God because of your sin. And that's why Christ came. He came to bring harmony and peace by taking on your sin at the cross, paying for it in full rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand. And even now he is touching your heart. Even right now he's asking you, will you bow to me? And maybe you're here today and you've never bowed your knee to Jesus in saving faith. You never said, I surrender myself to you. You're still white knuckling your sense of control. But in this moment, the spirit of God is convicting you that now is the time to surrender to Jesus. that is you, then I want, I want to lead you in a prayer to do just that. 
So if you're here today, nobody moving around, nobody's head uh, moved, every head bowed, just lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. If God's moving in your heart, Pastor, pray for me. I need to, I need to bow my knee to Jesus. I need to be right with Jesus. I need to acknowledge Jesus. I want to trust Jesus by faith right now. Lift up your hand, okay? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lift up your hand. Today's my day. This is my moment. All right, thank you. Anybody else? This is my day. The Spirit of God's convicting you. Okay, put your hand down. Just pray with me right where you are. Dear Lord, I acknowledge my sin that I'm far from you. But I thank you, Lord, that you came for me by sending Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe he rose again in power. And so I turn from my sin and I bend my knee to King Jesus. And I choose to follow you for my life. Lord, thank you for your great love for me. Lord, I thank you for this story, how fresh and new it is to us. Lord, I pray that we would live lives of bent knees before Jesus, acknowledging you as Lord and Savior until you come. And Lord, I pray as we go into this week, this last week of Christmas, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to find a place every morning to bend our knee to you, King Jesus, just like those wise men did. To open up our Bibles, to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts before you. And to acknowledge you as our King and our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,